None of us can do this on our own. And so it's really through partnerships and working across boundaries and finding those differences as much as our commonalities to tackle some of the bigger challenges that we're facing. People are doing this out of love. We don't talk about that very much, but that's why people are in this business, because they love nature, they love a particular place, they love a particular species or type or birds or something. They, it's a human attachment to something. My biggest goal is imagining somebody 200 years or 300 years from now, like thinking, I'm so glad they did this. I'm so glad that they had the foresight to do what is not possible to do today. You're listening to Climate Hot Seat with Amanda Sesser. Thanks for joining Climate Hot Seat. I'm your host, Amanda Sesser. On Climate Hot Seat, I often speak with people implementing climate adaptation actions, but there's a lot of people out there who are interested in climate change and concerned about climate change, but don't know where to start. And so I've just attended a course this week called Climate Smart Conservation, put on by the National Conservation Training Center, NCTC. I'm here in Portland, Oregon, and I'm, I'm just sat down, you know, following a week-long course with a, a colleague of mine, and I've asked her just to, to talk a little bit about why she came to the course and, and, and how she enjoyed it. So here is Anne. Thank you, Amanda. I am Anne Edwards. I am a trained ecologist in both marine and terrestrial systems, but mostly I consider myself a lifelong conservationist and conservation conservation biologist. I have quite an eclectic background, just to give you a little background. I have lived for many, many years overseas doing conservation work uh, in the deserts and also the tropical forests of Africa, and more recently in the grasslands of Mongolia, where my passion is to work with, with communities, resource-based communities, on conservation uh, actions that resonate with them that work. Uh, I have a doctoral degree from the University of Washington, uh, which is grounding me here, but really I am in a place where I am learning a great deal uh, about issues, Pacific Northwest, Western North America, who's doing what, and simultaneously I am thinking a lot about climate, as many of us are. And having been in this field for a number of decades, I've really seen the arc of conservation, uh, both domestically and internationally, where we have gone from prioritizing protected areas, drawing boundaries around parks, um, shifting into working with local people, to working more and more with the private sector, and relatively recently to uh, acknowledging and prioritizing, finally, uh, climate change and all that that means. So I am very excited to have just come off this amazing week uh, with this this climate smart course taught beautifully by Amanda and a number of other people from NCTC or associated with the NCTC, the, what is it, the National Conservation Training Center run by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Nothing but impressed. It, uh, but let me just say, coming off of this course, 
I got the essence of what I wanted, which was to understand process. Um, and I got so much more than that. But in essence, it's the process. So, so many of us are interested in conservation. We come at it from so many different points of view um, as scientists, as managers, as concerned citizens, as policy people, so many angles. People who read the newspaper or listen to the radio or watch TV or look on the web. And we're faced with this word climate or this concept of climate change and all of its manifestations. And I think I speak for many when I say uh, first thought is interest, second thought is like, whoa, Anneli, <laughs> what can I do? You know, as a scientist, as a manager, as a concerned citizen, as a voter. And pretty quickly, most of us almost go, well, I guess almost nothing besides maybe, you know, try to drive a Prius or try to turn off the lights. Um, but in the big picture, what does that mean? And as a conservation scientist professional, my, it, my, my question turns to, well, what can I do? And this class gave me the, the freedom and the blessing to move forward despite uncertainty. One of the biggest lessons I learned from this class is uncertainty is not a barrier. You don't dismiss uncertainty by any means, but this course um, helped me and all the others there to understand the, the role, the relative role of uncertainty and the ability to move forward with um, decisions, with scenario planning, all of which allows you to move forward with, with action, with implementation, with building partnerships, as well as every once in a while um, bringing in more scientists, science, data, monitoring. But it's not all based on the data or the monitoring or the certainty of where that's going. It's so much more complex, and this class has allowed us to pull all this complexity together and move forward. Great. You gave a presentation during the course, which blew me away. And, and what I really took from that was th the way that you brought human psychology together around change resistance. And not, it doesn't have to be climate change. It could be any kind of change. But, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, why are humans, why are people apathetic to climate change? Or even on, farther on the spectrum, why are, are they denying climate change? Yeah, that's a subject that's near and dear to my heart. And it goes back to my formative years in my 20s and 30s when I lived in Africa. Uh, I spent three years solidly in the continent, with, continent without, without leaving it and just, just with my eyes and heart open to how do people live on the land. I, I lived and worked with, with the Jungwasi Bushman people for two years. Uh, off and on. I mean, uh, my husband and I were, were at the time, this is apartheid era South Africa, and South Africa was the uh, ruling body for Namibia, which was known as Southwest Africa at that time. We were, as far as I know, <laughs> the only Americans in the country, probably weren't, but that's as far as I know, for all those years. And we were living and working with the Jinkwasi Bushman people uh, who had, we, we were working with individuals who had actually lived a 100% native, uh, untouched, hunter-gatherer lifestyle. 
And so they, and yet they were facing change now, uh, being forced to settle uh, rather than being nomadic. The Jungwesi Bushmen were transitioning from a 100% hunter-gatherer subsistence to what we called a mixed economy, which included a lot of hunting and gathering, but since they were now forced to be settled by, by the African South African government, uh, it included uh, some cow-calf pears and some seasonal gardening. Uh, but at the same time, we were working with them with the problem of lions taking their cattle and elephants stealing, you know, breaking their, their pumps on their, on their boreholes. And so just by living at that level of resource extraction from the earth and also living in that period of what was for them transformative change um, really, really set my sense of where humans are on our planet. And then as I flew home many years later, flying over uh, you know, Boston and at night and all the way down the eastern seaboard to land in New York, uh, I was truly stunned by the density of human existence, you know, five, four, five stories deep, I looked down and saw those buildings, you know, wall to wall lights, I saw that density. And I imagined how, you know, not only does, does every one of those people have clean water, but have water, but it's clean, it's safe for drinking. Not only does everyone have, you know, the ability to, 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 to get rid of their waste, but they never see it or smell it or think about it. Not only do they get to eat, but they are eating out-of-season vegetables that came from a thousand miles away. And now even as I say it, I realize those are the things we talk about. But at that time, I felt it and it meant something because I had lived, you know, there literally on the ground and seen where the water comes from, see where the waste goes. So that was very influential for me. So during my two years with the Zhengguasi, I, we were privileged enough to be accepted initially because of the way we were introduced to the community by the man who lived with them since the 1950s and had dedicated his life to helping them with this transition. Um, he left and my husband and I stayed, but we had that kind of introduction and we'd adopted their names and they had given us their names and so on. So during that two-year period, I was able to to understand more from their perspective uh, what it's like to face change, especially when most of it is not in your control. And as a result, uh, I came to appreciate in a way I never had before how much people will, uh, will make decisions based on fear and how if you don't present opportunities in an appropriate way for them, then it's not possible to move forward. People will be resilient within their, their frame of understanding. Uh, and if you challenge that frame, then they will not be open to new ideas or new data. So uh, back to this question more broadly about how to move forward with climate change implementation, which is based on good communication skills, it really has to do with, as we say widely, approaching someone 
with an awareness of their values and their framing. Uh, but I would add a layer, which is be very aware of anxiety and ambivalence uh, and the role that those two things play in closing people's ears and minds to the narrative that you're trying to to interject. So when we talk about uh, moving forward with climate action or implementation, of course, it starts with communication. And uh, I know that we, we talk a lot in this country about, you know, climate believers and climate deniers. Uh, and I think it would be better framed in a way to think about people who uh, yes, people who are fully on board with 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 understanding that climate climate is warming and changing, and are open to ideas to engage uh, to make a difference in adaptation or mitigation, um, even if it involves sacrifices. But as far as this big block of so-called climate deniers, I take a little bit of issue with that because um, I'll say yes, there are some people out there who are still actually denying. That, that things are changing. But I personally believe that there's a large number of those people that instead uh, are really in a position of, of, of anxiety and even ambivalence in relation to this uh, issue. Uh, a large part of it has to do with the nature of belonging. And if your group is, is actively um, and outwardly articulating denial, then even if you are ambivalent about it, you might articulate that response. And so uh, in terms of moving forward, it's really important to, to not just take all words at, at face value, but instead to read between the lines, understand that, that with climate change, the key being change, a lot of things are lost. Um, a, 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 for example, potential sense of cultural identity or a sense of um, ritual associated with a place or a set of smells or a set of, um, you know, certain species of tree turning color in the fall. There's just such a suite of primal relationships that we have with, with so many aspects of the natural world that it's plain and simple fear at a very, very deep and, and level that's difficult to articulate that uh, holds us back from accepting that scale of change. So it's really important if you want to work with someone who is hesitant, who has an essence of denial, to understand that, to, to find where, where that potential sense of loss is coming from, from that change whether it's belonging to a group or something in relation to the natural world, address it, acknowledge it, and then acknowledge it again, acknowledge that connection between you and them that, yes, this is hard, and then help them to redirect that, that sense of loss to a place where they, in their own way, can, can find another way to fulfill that particular thing that, that that they recognize or they sense will be lost. So it's, it's acknowledge and then redirect. And that's how we're all going to move forward uh, with, with steps in each in our own way, defined in our own way, uh, to, to adapt, even if it's adapt psychologically, even if it's adapt 
culturally, um, even if you don't do anything on the ground, we have to adapt individually and culturally in order to support and enable and frankly just live through this unprecedented unprecedented change uh, in our world. Seems like what you're talking about with connecting with somebody that, you know, it doesn't, if it's a climate denier or, or just somebody that you disagree with about anything, what you said stuck with me a little. And it's first thing is that in order to identify with that person before you can even redirect, you have to listen and you have to listen to what they're saying. And then what you're talking about is empathizing, right? You feel where that person is coming from and, and how they might be affected. Yes, you said it very well. That's exactly right. I think uh, that some people are inherently potentially more empathetic than others. Uh, I feel like those who have experienced other cultures, either you know within our own state, within our own country, or internationally, um, have an appreciation for how different, how differently people can view the same world we all live in. Um, as you travel more widely, you get better insights into why that is. But the most important thing is that you just open your mind to the fact that, yes, the same facts resonate differently with different people. And that's a start. The thing to remember about all of this is that this change is literally unprecedented in human lifetime unprecedented. The other thing to remember is that all of us are profoundly connected to both our natural environment and our tribe and the people who support us. And both of those are so deeply fundamental. And I think if we, if we ignore those as just too woo-woo or soft and fuzzy uh, and ignore those facts entirely, then we are never going to get there. Uh, we are we're never going to get everyone on board with the so-called facts. Okay, they're not so-called. They're true. I totally believe in the data. I'm a scientist. But it's the idea of this change, the idea that uh, whole ecosystems will transition, that deciduous forests will become grasslands. How fundamentally strange is that? Um, it's 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 massive, and I think we have to bring that right up front and uh, acknowledge that it's massive, and then take a step back to walk through the actual actions it will take to either mitigate or adapt to that change. Absolutely, very well said. Before we move on, I have to ask you about what your name was when you were with the Bush people in in Namibia. Oh my. Okay, so um, so I was, well, I haven't practiced my clicks in a while, so here we go. My name was Kuo. Kuo. There we go. Kuo. That was my name. My husband's name was Oma. <laughs> Oma. And uh, they are two elders, and we, the man that we uh, followed there, he, he spent his youth following Oma and Kuo uh, around, and their son is Tsamkao. And so when my husband and I had our first son, his middle name is now Tsamkao. <laughs> How did you spell that on the birth certificate? 
Excellent question. We debated and we knew it would be problematic and I am not into adding problems. So even though we know it's somehow, which uh, would be spelled by um, Ferdy Weich, who was the German uh, religious person who came and, and was the first person to ever put the Zhenghua language in writing, he would have written it capital T-S-A-M-K-X um, slash slash A-O. We, on the birth certificate, we simplified it's T-S-A-M-K-O. Oh, what a wonderful story. Great. Was your son born in Africa? Well, uh, following our, our uh, close to three years in southern Africa and traveling up to Central Africa, we were ready uh, for some moist areas. And so after coming back to the States, we enrolled in a graduate program and we both did our master's work in Cameroon, where we lived in the middle of the rainforest, a day's walk from the nearest road for more than a year and worked with local villages. Uh, and at the end of that, the strangest thing happened. Uh, this is all about kids, but the strangest thing happened is as soon as I got back to the States for the first time in my life, I said, I want to have a kid. So so that's when he was born, and we had every intention of taking our kids back, um, but it gets complicated. And we have some uh, some mentors who raise their kids in the forest, um, John and Therese Hart and uh, Amy Vetter and Bill Weber, and they, uh, they really... Uh, we had our, our, our hearts set on following in their footsteps, but instead, um, our kids spent ye- a lot of time in the field, but it wasn't in Africa. At, at dinner the other night, we were talking about some time that you spent in Mongolia, working for a major international conservation association. I think, you know, I, I was just fascinated by hearing your stories about the wide open landscapes and 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 everything, but um, so if you could tell tell us a little bit about your time in Mongolia and and also more specifically what kind of changes were you seeing there and and even now fast forward how many years uh, what are the people of Mongolia really struggling with Mongolia is truly a fascinating country uh, for many many reasons Uh, just a, a quick history lesson that is really important to where they are today uh, they were uh, an independent country, but basically a, a satellite of the Soviet Union. So for 70 years, there was this exchange uh, where in Mongolia, the highly dispersed people, Mongolia is the least populated country on the planet, uh, the, least, the least densely populated country on the planet, only 3 million people in the entire country, but just spread out across the vast steppes and deserts and mountains. So during those 70 years, uh, the Mongolian people provided livestock, uh, beef primarily, um, and some, in very small areas, wheat. And in exchange for support in um, a, a socialist structure of uh, of of health and education systems. So they're very well educated. The women are really equally educated to the men. I just adore the women there, really strong. Uh, But when the Soviet Union fell, Mongolia was utterly transformed, uh, not all in a good way. So that that structure and uh, that support for health and education all fell away at once. Uh, Suddenly, weapons, as in just shotguns, but but guns became available to local people in a way that they hadn't been. 
um, the economy collapsed, and so the wildlife in a short period of time, uh, approximately 10 years, was really decimated such that uh, for the economically viable species such as wolf and fox and marmot, uh, Mongolian gazelle, uh, their populations went down uh, from uh, 30 to 70 percent. So by the time uh, we arrived uh, in, I arrived in uh, 2013, it was a, 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 a sort of an uphill battle. On the other hand, that economic development was opened to uh, international partners who flooded in primarily for mining. And so as part of the, the conservation work that we were doing, we were engaging directly with the mining companies to work on biodiversity monitoring um, as mandated by the international lenders uh, to assess the impact of the mine on, on the, the landscape. But what I noticed there was that a great deal of transition was happening. So, so the, no, the nomadic herders were finding that conditions were deteriorating. They were getting drier. Uh, their water sources were, uh, some of them were drying up. Uh, they had to go further for grass. The, the, the variability of where the water was going to fall and how much was going to fall was increasing with that water influencing how much grass there was and how much livestock they could have. The bottom line, and also their winters were getting more intense, not, not necessarily colder, but wetter. And so there were, in certain years, there were massive um, and continue to be massive livestock die-offs such that uh, uh, there's been a great influx to the one capital city, Ulaanbaatar, and great slums being set up uh, on, the, on the hillside, which is known as the Gare district because a gare is a yurt, and so the whole hillside is covered in felt-lined uh, gares, but it's really people just desperate for an existence. So as, as a uh, leader of one of the conservation organizations in country, I was asked a number of times to attend uh, conferences at the national level uh, specifically, specifically focused on on climate and climate change. So there's great awareness uh, at the national level that climate is uh, critically important. There's great awareness that that change is already happening, uh, and there's great awareness that without planning, uh, the country is going to be in big, big trouble. So, uh, with the help of many, many international partners, there are uh, a, a lot more. There's a lot of data available, a lot of a lot of model model outputs available, a lot of scenarios run to see uh, what the the economic impact is on livestock, um, what the impact is on on where people are distributed. Uh, and the national government has has a very high appreciation for the value of this kind of work. Oh, that's incredible! You know, because um, just to see that kind of support, that level of support coming from the national government, that that's great. So, of all the places you've worked all around the world, and I heard something the other day about working on albatross on Midway Atoll in the Hawaiian Islands, and what's been your favorite? Well, I have favorites for different reasons. So, I had just breathtaking encounters with wildlife in Africa, um, living on the 
when we lived with the Jeunesse, living where there were there were literally lions, there were literally, I mean, giraffe, and there were wild dogs, and it was all there. That was an elephants at our waterholes. That was extraordinary. When we traveled, uh, we were with mountain gorillas. When I did my work in Cameroon, I walked all my transects alone every day, and the most incredible encounter I had there was was with a troop of 50 drill. So drills are like mandrills, where the entire troop walked up. I was hiding behind a big buttress root, and they walked to within six feet of me before they detected me. The whole time, I, my eyes were just peeking over the very top of this buttress root with the rest of me hidden, because I knew as soon as this, this massive troop with this fearsome male in the lead and these strong females supporting him as soon as this this incredible presence of of primates uh uh with this power saw me one single human they would flee for their lives literally because they were hunted and that's exactly what happened so as they approached my heart was pounding and i kept reminding myself as soon as they see you, you're gonna run so it was very very bittersweet and I have to ask the stupid question here is, um, what's a mandrill or a drill? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you might see them at the zoo. I first encountered them at the Portland Zoo when I was in high school. I watched them a lot. They're like a baboon. They're a forest baboon. So they're, they spend a lot of time on the ground. They can climb trees, but they mostly cross the ground. They're quadrupedal. Um, just incredible primates with bright blue faces and bright blue butts. That's how you might know them. Oh wow, that's fascinating. So what uh, you were you were telling me were your favorite places to work and are there any more that you'd like to add? Well, I was going to say uh uh that I was describing the wildlife and and uh those experiences just send me to the moon and I think they would for for most many people and as you said uh being a part of uh being on the colony at Midway with, with a million albatross uh, where you can just sit there and they literally, if you sit quietly, they will literally walk over you because unlike the seabirds we're familiar with, like gulls and terns that have predators here on land, they don't have predators, uh, evolutionarily speaking, because they're mid-oceanic. And that is, that is just breathtaking. But what I wanted to add is that that's wildlife. And as far as favorite places to work... Uh, working with the local people in Namibia, the Jinkwasi, and uh, more recently, a huge shout out to to the Mongolians and the Mongolian conservationists, and especially the team I worked with, who were predominantly women. Uh, I am so in awe of of their depth in the face of change, of their of their understanding of what's going on in the field locally. And they're just their persistence and their perseverance in the face of economic change, political change, um, dealing with a lot of international bodies, whether they're conservation or economic, um, just solid uh, in terms of being balanced and ultimately just revering the natural world, understanding we need to derive subsist you know substance from it economically but just trying to make the whole balance work well the mongolian people have had a thousand year or more reputation of of being sturdy strong and resilient people yeah and uh i i have to admit that before i went i didn't have a appreciation for who the Mong mongols who the mongolians are 
as a people. And I spent time there and just and just adored their forthrightness. Um, uh, but at the same time, they have their country of three million, and so China on their border. Uh, you know, there's always this this. You just know China's there. You know, there's imports from China. Um, China is is the giant uh, in today's world. If you if you go to Mongolia, and yet when I traveled to Beijing and I mentioned that I was living in UB, it always brought a smile to my face that the Chinese response these individuals was oh the Mongols oh and it's ironic isn't it because the Chinese built the Great Wall of China to keep out the Mongols and the Mongols actually invaded successfully and it's outrageous that. Uh, about a thousand years later, uh, there's still that reputation. I just love that. <laughs> that's, yes, that's fantastic. So looking forward, thinking you know about your global perspective, where do you think the changes in the next half century are going to be the most pertinent around the globe? Or maybe another way to phrase this question is, where do you think that you know the next generation of conservationists should focus or or what area is going to need the most resources and attention that's a big one i hate to start with the negative but what comes to mind to me is increasing heat and increasing drought in the parts of the world that already are stressed by both of those. And the fact that there's predictions for whole swaths of our earth to become uninhabitable uh, by humans is, is massive. If you lay on top of that the phenomenal rates of population increase, which are starting to level off, but in Africa are, are just scary how high they are. It's just, it's hard to conceive of, of what that's going to look like. And so I think an awareness of the importance of fundamental partnerships to help support uh, economic development in a way that seeks to reduce the rate of population growth is important. It seems secondary and yet fundamental, because without that, we start having climate refugees. So we start with the worst, but then let's move up to happier scenarios. I think with climate change, uh, the world is going to become more aware of our dependence on natural resources, on functioning ecosystems, on water availability, on the importance of green infrastructure to do... Uh, if we support it, to do on its own, which otherwise we would have to put in billions of dollars to replicate, I think we'll just have a, a clear understanding of, of our connections. Coming up further north, where there are certainly many opportunities that are going to be created, along with, with, with a lot of perceived loss, clearly, you know, the, the extreme climate, the, the extreme latitudes offer opportunities, but uh, we're all going to have to embrace change. And I think the way we frame change, the way we prioritize change, that is really what is going to shape conservation 
going forward. Well, thank you so much, Anne. I really have enjoyed getting to meet you this week, and uh, this has been one of the best classes of climate smart conservation that I've been involved with, so I've just been really happy to be able to come to Portland and, and meet all the participants and learn about the work that each one of you are doing, because it's just a, a fascinating room full of, of uh, conservation professionals that are you know, all in the same boat of starting to deal with change, get your heads wrapped around change, grapple with it, what am I going to do about it? But it's it's been a real pleasure to meet you. Amanda, thank you, and thanks for being such an amazing teacher, bringing the, the full breadth of your experiences and your keen intellect, your ability to pull together um, from so many sources to really get to the point. Uh, so, and thank you for this opportunity to share some of my stories. Very welcome. Thanks, Anne. If you have requests on topics for future episodes, please let us know. If you would like us to feature your work on adaptation, transformation, or sustainability solutions, we would love to hear from you. Look for more episodes of Climate Hot Seat on 21sustainability.com. Creating a podcast takes a lot of time and money. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, Amanda and Jason would really appreciate your help. If you're feeling generous, head on over to 21sustainability.com slash podcast and click on the Patreon link. There you can sign up to become a patron and donate one, two, five, however many dollars a month you want, and it's easy to cancel anytime. For less than the price of a cup of coffee, you can support your favorite climate adaptation podcast. Climate change isn't something that one person or one country is going to solve alone. But by working together, we can not only solve present challenges, but we can create a more just, equitable world to live in at the same time. This is a 21 Sustainability production. Editing by Jason Mitson, music by Lee Roosevelt. Follow me on Twitter. At Professor Sesser.